Hi everyone, it's Megan Reardon Jarvis. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm so excited to be able to give you this bonus episode with Simon Cooper from the Financial Times. Simon is a author and a journalist. His article in the Financial Times caught my eye, The True Toll of the Anti-Vax Movement, where he wrote about a 13-year-old boy who was on the receiving end of some cruelty connected to his father's death from COVID. Simon and I spent 30 minutes discussing the polarization around vaccinations in this country and what it might mean for grief and loss. I'm really grateful to Simon for being so gracious with his time. He spoke to me from Spain at, I think it was 7.30 at night. I hope you enjoy this episode, and I've linked his article in the show notes. I know that you write a lot about things that I would say sort of fall into the social sciences and psychology. Yeah. I'm super grateful for your work and bringing it into the mainstream. How did that come about for you? Was that something that was generally in the ethos? Did you meet someone and hear their story? How did the concept of people talking about COVID come into your level of interest? I mean, obviously I've been thinking like everyone about COVID for two years. Yeah. And like everyone, I've been thinking about the issue of anti-vax and unvaccinated people because that's a huge amount of the death that's going on now. And as you know, there's a huge amount of mocking of those people, especially when one of them dies. And I've never joined in that. So, I mean, I'm very strongly pro-vaccination, but I've right. never thought there was any point or any humanity in mocking people, especially people who die. <laughs> but what brought about this column was I was talking to a friend the other week and she said, I know this 13 year old boy whose father has just died. The yeah. father was a highly educated man, very intelligent. He became an anti-vaxxer. He decided that, you know, vaccinations, it was all nonsense. It was all conspiracy and so on. And he tweeted very actively against vaccinations, then caught COVID. He wrote a tweet saying, you know, I'm happy last got COVID, it's about time. And then a couple of weeks later, he was dead. And of course, people mock him because he was a prominent anti-vaxxer who died of it. And I thought this poor 13 year old boy, imagine you're 13, you don't really have a strong view about whether vaccinations are good or bad. I mean, why would you, right. you're a teenager? And then your father dies, which for you know 13 year olds, maybe the most devastating thing he'll ever live through. And it's a subject of mockery. And how can you tell people you know, I'm devastated because my father died. How did your father die? Well, he was an anti-vaxxer. And then immediately all sorts of criticisms and mocking occurs to people. So I'm curious about this because you wrote in your article, people are, are keeping the diagnosis of COVID out of the obituary. And what it made me think of was a friend of mine who was Korean, committed suicide last, actually almost a year ago. And in her culture, the notion of suicide is just abominable. It, it means something that in you know, my culture, it does not. And it was left off of the obituary. And from a mental health perspective, that's hard because suicide needs to be talked about. We want to erase the stigma. You know, it's a disease of depression. But someone's suicide is sort of relatable to their life and the people who are immediately around them, similar to an overdose. What's complicated with COVID is that 
if someone is not vaccinated, what's implied is that they were putting others at risk. Obviously, this is nothing for this 13-year-old boy, but I'm curious about how you think about that and what you feel about what, what the better way forward would be. I mean, for a start, if you say to people, as a lot of people are doing, oh, you're stupid and evil because you're not vaccinated, people don't tend to say, you're right, I'm stupid and evil. That's right. Uh, I'm going to, you've convinced me and now I'm going to be a good person like you. You tend to harden them in their position. You make it hard for them to leave their position because then they feel shame about abandoning the position they've taken. So I like the fact that I believe in most health services now in countries, they say to unvaccinated people, it's not too late. You can come now. Nobody is going to shame you. Nobody's going to make you feel bad that you weren't vaccinated until now. Just come and do it. So, uh, and also, I mean, I think telling unvaccinated people, look, try and think of it as beyond yourself. It's also about your grandmother. It's also about someone you happen to have a conversation with in a restaurant, et cetera. You, because a lot of unvaccinated people are proud that they're so strong, you know, they have these incredibly strong immune systems, they say, so they don't need vaccination. Well, who knows? But the person you talk to in the restaurant may not have such a strong vaccine, uh, no, immune system as you imagine you, are, you have. I think there's this fantasy around anything connected with death that we actually control any of it. So when you're vaccinated, you are preventing the possibility, right? Like if you are vaccinating yourself, it doesn't 100% mean that you're not going to get COVID and die from it. But we know statistically that, you know, it, it, the rate is cut by something dramatic. The, the concept of talking to people about something as in my mind, logical as taking medicine so that you don't die or harm other people has become so polarized. I've lived through lots of political change in my country over here, but it is really stunning that it, that the concept around whether or not you choose medication in order to prevent illness to yourself and to other people is, as you just described it, kind of like your membership into a community. That's the thing that most people feel like they have lost so much of in COVID is all the connection. Just the idea of going and watching sports. You're affiliating with a whole big group of people that are passionate about the same thing that you're passionate about. Do you have thoughts or feelings about the way in which vaccinating or not vaccinating has become so polarized. You may have a broader sort of global picture. I really only know it from the States and a little bit from the UK because my husband is English, but do you have thoughts about sort of how we've gotten here? Well, I think it is in all the developed countries, it's a US problem much more than anywhere else. So in France, you know, before the vaccines came, France was considered the most vaccine skeptical country in the world in a welcome trust survey. And, you know, just before they came, most French people saying they wouldn't get vaccinated. Then the vaccines come and 90% are now vaccinated. So they, the polarization crumbled. They didn't really believe it. The US is the only country where 40% or so of the population is kind of betting their lives on being unvaccinated. Yeah. And of course, you know, I wrote another column this week saying that polarization in the US is worse. So I think what you were talking about community, I think that's a very important thing. And in the US, there seems to be a particular problem of loss of community, yeah. a particular problem of especially male loneliness seems to be 
worse there than in other countries. The number of American men in particular saying they have close friends has declined a lot in 35 years. And I think one thing that political polarization gives Americans is it gives you an identity, a tribe and a community. So, you know, you might be a New York Yankees fan, but the more powerful community is now, are you, you know, with the red or with the blue team? That's right. And and then with vaccines, when they came along, that just got subsumed into the pre-existing polarization of America. And if you've decided I'm on the red team, that means I can't get vaccinated. Then even as you see people around you getting ill, you worry about dying unvaccinated, it's very hard to leave the red team because you yeah. lose your friends. You mentioned that in your article. I thought that was such a good point that most people are not just sort of keeping this quietly to themselves. They're talking about it in their Instagram or they have a community of people that they have connected to. And so I suppose it's like anything else, you know, if you say you're not eating sugar, then you can't eat sugar with in front of the people that are also not eating sugar. But, but at a time where everybody is feeling so disconnected, there is actually a real sort of jeopardy to your own sense of identity. If you let go of this, even though you may feel differently because you've watched people get sick. And I, I mean, my family last week had COVID Well, we, you know, last week and the week before my younger son brought it home from school and we all caught it pretty quickly, despite the fact that we're all vaccinated as much as we possibly could be, but all five of us had it. And I kept saying to relatives, whoever has written that this is like a mild flu is doing us all an incredible disservice because I've never been as sick as I was, but never that kind of sickness. And I just don't, I mean, I can't even imagine what it would have done to my body or my children's bodies if we hadn't had medicine in to help protect our bodies. I don't know how much you know about this. So just bear with me while I say it for a second, but there's this Stephen Porges talks about what we call in this country, kind of like the Mr. Rogers phenomenon, that when you're in trouble, you look to the social connections to support you. And after that, if that doesn't work, if there's no one around, then you kind of end up dipping into the fight, flight, freeze, instinctive responses that the body goes into when it's in a panic. And I think there's been an underestimation in general about how detrimental it is to our mental health to not be able to connect with people. That just looking at someone eye to eye and having them nod while you're saying something is different physically in person than it is on Zoom. Do you have a sense of, you know, again, sort of looking at it globally, what people are doing in order to move across the, the political polarization around the COVID vaccine? Or do you feel like kind of America has screwed themselves and everybody else has kind of gotten on board and there's not a lot of hope? I think the proportions in the US are just so different that, you know, 40% or so is unvaccinated. So you have those people in France. Yeah, it's something like 10% or a bit less. And I think in the US, you know, people have discussed why America's so polarized, and it's partly because religious plus ethnic, so in the case of Republicans, white identity plus ideological beliefs all coincide. And so you've got this extremely strong tribe, more so on the Republican side, because they're actually more similar in their ethnicity and their beliefs. The Democrats are kind of broader church. So that kind of coincidence of religion, identity. I mean, religion is not a factor in most European politics. That makes life easier. And the other thing I think why American, why it's worse in the US is 
America has this undercurrent of possible violence because so many people have guns. So we're talking about a possible civil war in the US, which I don't think is going to happen. But when you have, you know, tens of millions of people who are armed, who also believe often that God wants their side to win, then you're sort of, it sounds more like India plus guns or Turkey plus guns, then it sounds like France or Italy, where you have political disagreements, but without that potential for violence and without the presence of religion. It sounds so crazy to me when you say it like that. I mean, you've said it very pragmatically and diplomatically. I don't have any political dog in the fight of guns other than to say, it seems to me that practical people understand that we should not have so many of them. But it does sound when you've just reflected it like that, you know, it does make us sound like, what are we doing over here? It's a scary component and a, and a little bit, it doesn't, it, it's hard to see how anybody is going to dig their way out of it. You mentioned in your article that your, tell me if I get this right, that you, both of your grandmothers lost husbands and children over the course they, of their- They lost their fathers. Yeah, well, teenagers, each one, and then they each lost a child when um, the child was quite small. Yeah. And I think you said in the article that they that because we do better talking about grief now than certainly we talked about it back then, that maybe the impact on them at that time could have been more difficult than what we have going on right now. Do you have good and specific examples or hopeful examples of how you're seeing people manage and handle some mm. of the grief, whether it's about COVID or otherwise? Well, I mean, both my grandmothers never were able to talk about it and I think were depressed uh, for long stretches of their life, largely because of losing a child. And then a friend of mine, a guy my age, he and his wife lost a, a baby when the child was a few months old. You know, dreadful, it just couldn't be worse. And I, you know, I talked to him about this and I talked about my grandparents and he got out of it. He and his wife, they talked about it a lot. They talked about it very freely. They talked about it at, you know, when you'd go out for dinner and they were very open about their feelings. Mm. And I'm not saying that, you know, you know, it's better than me. I'm not saying that openness is the solution and then suddenly your grief goes away and it's all fine. And my friend, his, uh, his telephone, the, the picture on his telephone is his child who died. And, but he has, he has three other children, you know, lovely kids. Yeah. And I think that they managed to get through it and get out of it and to become happy people again in a way that my grandparents didn't. And I do think that the openness, the ability to talk about it, the fact that, I mean, he told me that they were, they'd moved to a new town when this happened. And he said a few days later, there was a ring at the doorbell and he opens the door, you know, sort of unable to function, unable to think. And this woman, a neighbor, stands there and she hands him some food. She's cooked food. Mm. And it's someone he's seen once. And she gives him some food and she can't say anything. She doesn't know what to say. And she says, here. And she goes away. And he says, you know, that meant a lot. That she wasn't able to come and talk to him about it. He didn't want yeah. that. But that she had shown that kind of, I know I care. I don't think my grandmother's had that. I think that's an incredibly important, COVID or not, but just how do we show up to validate, right? Because I think that's 
I think one of the things that is ex that people are experiencing and some of the statistics that I know are about sort of young adults and teenagers because the suicidality of that population has gone up so dramatically and social scientists are trying to figure out why and how to intervene and provide support but but there is a thing with adolescence which is natural in their brain development there's a natural depression that's activated as their brain is sort of being we think of it as expanding, but it's actually being pared down so that it functions more effectively. There's a physical depression that happens during that period of time. And in that depression, one of the things that depression does is it tells you the story that only you feel the way you feel. And when you talk to people about their adolescence, generally people can hearken back to that time and sort of say like, yeah, I felt like I was the only awkward one or the only uncomfortable one. And the task in adolescence is often to find peers to connect to and groups of peers to connect to, you know, whether you do that through sports or music or whatever it is, but for at least a year for many, they weren't able to do that. And I think at the root of it is, is this concept of validation, just feeling like you are a person of worth when folks are able to say kind of a little bit of me too the heartache of your, both of your grandmother's story is for whatever reason, the fact that they went through these two devastating events, there wasn't room in the culture at that time, or they didn't feel like there was to say, gosh, that's awful. And also here's a support group at your local church of people who have also- There would had... definitely have been no support groups. Uh, yeah. my, my friend who was bereaved told me he went to a support group for a while of parents who had lost a child and he stopped going because he said the other parents he felt were so depressed and he felt some of them were not going to go out, get out of it. So they dragged him down. So yeah, I mean, so do support groups help? It's great, always help. Clearly they sometimes help and it's great that you have that option well, exactly what your friend said is a common complaint, both of things that are online, and I monitor a lot of grief groups online, and also support groups in general, that one thing that we haven't done well, and this is really my wheelhouse, is being able to distinguish the folks for whom there is a natural progression. You know, I think of grief and loss as this terrible, like, I don't know, watermelon of energy that is dumped on you when you when you experience a loss and you have to figure out how to carry this new weight. Most people have a trajectory of how they do that. They need support, but there are some people that are in a traumatic loss, meaning they're not moving forward. They're just covered in watermelon. And when you go to support groups, there are always some folks who are not healing. And one thing I don't think that we do well really across the world is be able to help people distinguish between what the natural progression of grief looks like, which is much longer than people think it looks like, you know, it, it is a, it is a much more integrated process, lifelong process, kind of like becoming a parent, you're a griever forever, but then there is traumatic loss, which is like the trauma happens. It, it, impacts your five senses system. And the only thing you take away is a negative and the rest of your life is less than. And that's sort of how we define trauma and people in support groups. We don't help folks distinguish between the two, because when we look at grief and loss, there's generally with enough basic support, people will learn to carry their grief. And in trauma, you need treatment and intervention. 
you are folding in on yourself and sort of getting worse. I know because I run, I run groups that when you have someone who is with untreated trauma around the event, they can destroy the goodness of the support group and for other people. What I was thinking about with the stories about your grandmothers is that there's a palliative care uh, specialist in the UK named Catherine Mannix, who wrote a beautiful book recently called Listen about sort of just how to bear witness and validate people's experiences and loss. She focuses more on death and helping people die. But she talks a lot about how we used to die in the home and that illness used to be more you know, present and that people who were giving birth in the home would have death happen in the home. And that some of it also is that we don't have the generalizable experience of the culture holding on to grief and loss. I don't know that that would be true in either of your grandmother's experience, but I think about that a lot. I think about, I wonder whether the idea that we now, again, it's, you know, 7.75 million new grievers due to COVID and just in the United States, it's hard for me to imagine that we aren't going to have to shift the culture of sort of how we show up and validate people's need for grieving and loss in general. But how I'm just, we, go ahead. How would we'll, we do that? Well, I mean, I, you know, the way my little like soapbox and passion is with trauma. If someone came in to work with me because they had survived a, the earthquake in Haiti years ago, generally what they would say to me is that they have a whole bunch of physical sensations that are happening in their body. They startle easily. They're not eating. They're not sleeping. They're afraid of dying all the time. There's a sort of a universal understood in the world of trauma about what we would expect the meaning that the traumatic event would have on our body. Like if you're in a car accident and somebody slams on the brakes, the next time you're in a car and the brakes get slammed on, it just makes sense that your body might then have a strong reaction. If we were to translate what we know about how bodies respond to trauma over into the world of grief and loss, I actually think that we could teach people a whole bunch about how their brains and their bodies are going to respond and help them not create meaning around it. That they are different. By the time someone walks into my office to get treatment for trauma, they've usually been looking for me for a while and are stunned to discover that there are a whole bunch of actual treatments, you know, mm -hmm. treatments like physical therapy that would help intervene. So I'm, 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 I'm curious, I'm interested to see whether or not there are going to be ways that we step to the population like a 13-year-old boy who has lost his father and support him rather than make him feel, you know, ashamed because that shame is going to be more destructive than anything, honestly. One interesting thing is that we've been quite good in recent decades about reducing shame around certain deaths. So when gay men started to die in the HIV epidemic in the 80s, there was a lot of shame about that. It wasn't talked about. And now HIV is talked about and most people feel able to say that they have it, etc. And suicide, as you said earlier, was terrible to be also in Catholic cultures. It was a uh, mortal sin. And now... Um, it is more spoken of, it's still somewhat taboo. 
drug overdoses, um, you know, have become so common in, in the US in particular that yeah. I think it makes it easier for people to talk about. So we're getting better at reducing shame. We're getting better at being different at saying, I've had this experience that, you know, is unusual, but I'm not going to be ashamed of me at all. And now with COVID deaths, for many reasons, that kind of silence and shame is descending. So we've invented a new kind of shame, which is, which is a real step back. I agree with you. And I think in each one of the examples that you just gave, actual core education, being able to educate someone around what HIV was and how it was transmitted and you know who was in jeopardy and how it was killing bodies. Same with suicidality. People still look at suicidality in, in an old fashioned sort of way, but you know, there's a lot of material out there that people can educate themselves on to look at that and say, okay, that this is the disease of depression. And that some people, one of the features of their disease is that the thoughts of suicide and the impulses towards suicide are part of that disease. Same with addiction that we know so much more about sort of what the biochemical impacts to the body and the historic epigenetics of it. I think that is so important. What is distinct and interesting in each one of those examples is that what the person is going through is distinctly a threat to themselves. And the difficulty with COVID, when people are trying to hide it, it's not just about, you know, religious shame about death. It's that their relative was unvaccinated, which put other people at risk around them, not just to be impacted by their death, but to be impacted by their lack of health. That's going to be a hard lift. It's going to be a hard lift to help support people Mm -hmm. with 13 year old boy should not feel ashamed of his father's choices, but people will want him to. Yeah, I mean, it's partly that they were putting other people at risk, but also they've made a choice which is scientifically incorrect. Exactly. And so it's like saying, I'm going to smoke a lot because that's going to reduce the risk of my dying of cancer. So these people have made a mistake, but we all make mistakes every day, you know. Right. When people do math tests, they make mistakes. When people do science tests, they make mistakes. This is very unusual in that it's a mistake that uh, kills you or can kill you. That's exactly right. Can kill you and, and can, you know, potentially kill other people who are around you. It's devastating. What I also think about is how when people feel helpless and they feel out of control, that they often want to push everything else away from them, not just in COVID, but it is really common to have someone ask a question. I actually had a client, I had a a group recently meet and I had one client say to another, how did your person die? And they said, oh, they had a heart attack. And the next thing she asked was, was she overweight? And, you know, they had, because it's a therapy group, they sort of tussled it out. People talk about their real feelings and, you know, my client, the clients were talking about wanting to have some way of organizing why that death happened and then being able to exclude themselves from the category at risk. And I think that's, generally true that when people are asking those terribly thoughtless questions sometimes what's at the root of it is do i have to worry about this for myself or not and i think covid is really really polarizing in that way which is you know i am the smart person who has studied and you know looked into this and adhered to what science says 
and you, your team is not. And I think there is there are many, many ways that people employ that sort of distancing technique. But as you've mentioned, it drives this shame focus. I mean, my big hope is that the, your article and more articles are going to ask people to at least be thoughtful about what they're doing. Articles as sensitive and, and informative as yours that people are going to be able to use. You mentioned Kendoka's disenfranchised grief. We're going to be able to use those words and understand that, you know, we can either take this experience and continue to double down, or we can take the opportunity to decide that we're going to be supportive. And I will say, because I have sort of my finger on the pulse of things in the UK, I know you're in Spain. The UK is doing a much better job of offering support both through newspaper articles in that community and also voices and people who've stepped forward to sort of say, here's what we know and here's how to do it. Here's how to do it better. I'm really, really grateful for your time. And is there anything else you want us to know about upcoming articles or things that you're interested in terms of COVID? You mentioned you wrote, you wrote another one recently, so I'll have to get my hands on that. Um, I wrote an article recently about polarization. I keep watching COVID. I mean, it's just so fascinating in every way. I mean, it's, it's dreadful, but it's also politically, sociologically fascinating. So I'm always looking to it for new things to write about, but uh, nothing at the moment. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your work and I really appreciate your time. Very nice to talk. Thanks a lot. It's nice to meet you. Thank you, Simon. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, if you like the show and you want more Grief is My Side Hustle content, you can come find me on Instagram, Megan Reardon Jarvis. It's M-E-G-H-A-N dot reardon dot jarvis and you can also come over to the podcast there's i think 45 more episodes that you can listen to or you can follow me on facebook under grief is my side hustle